So, if you're seeing me up here and not Dr. Talbot, you've realized that the assistant pastors are returning back to our fourth Sunday in terms of circuits in regards to giving uh, pastor uh, a break uh, and giving us an opportunity uh, to expound and be able to show our talent. And with that being said, I'm praying to God that I'm not rusty. It's been approximately, I would say, eight months since I've been up here. So I'm still going to have fun with it. I'm still going to remember my P's and Q's. I'm still going to remember to enunciate. And I might avoid the word author. Maybe. Just maybe. So I have the pleasure after we've explored 1 John, the epistle written by John the Apostle, I have the honor of actually starting the new book, which we'll be entering into, which is the Gospel of John. And as a good Presbyterian, as always, as you know, we should always have our clock ready and abled. Uh, but then also, believe it or not, I do not have a long title. I kept it simple. Now, I might get a pow-pow after this because as a seminary student, you usually have a title in the subtitles. But believe it or not, I'm going to keep this particular sermon today simple. I title it The Gospel of John, The Intro. That should probably be on a t-shirt. Our scripture text for this intro actually would actually help put us in perspective of the journey that we're about to embark. In fact, I am excited because to actually take on this challenge of expounding on the Gospel of John in particular, uh, we know things about the Apostle uh, that does not actually need to be said. But nonetheless, I hope by the end of the intro, I catch your attention as well. So if you have your Bibles, just for the intro today, our scripture text is Acts 17, 24 through 31. It reads, The God who made the world and everything that is in it. He is the Lord of heaven and earth. He does not dwell in the temple made by hands. Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all people life and breath. And all things. Verse 27. That they would seek God. If perhaps they might feel around for him. And find him. Though he is not far from each one of us. For in verse 28. For in him we live. And move. And exist. And as even as some of your poets have said. For we are also his descendants. Therefore, since we are the descendants of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by human skill and thought. So having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now proclaiming to mankind that all people everywhere are to repent and verse 31, because he has set a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all people by raising him from the dead. 
Shall I look to the Lord our God now in prayer? Father, we do thank you for this Sabbath day that you have given us, Lord, and we are mindful that you have allowed us to be here in good health, and we want to take that for granted, Lord. So as your servant here is conveying the word, Lord, be with him as he conveys the liberties of Christ to his people, but then also let them have a childlike love and a willing mind to receive the word that's being spoken of, everything spoken by you. It is a showment of proof. Just as you've shown the apostles that their writings are continuing to comfort the church, let them know that the ministers up here are here to continue to counsel them. It's in Christ's holy and precious name we pray. Amen. So, some of you might be thinking now, well, Pastor, that is pretty nice. You bought a Paulinian excerpt into your introduction into the Gospel of John. But is it relevant, though? And I'll respond, it actually is. You see, some people, and when I say some, I mean those who have a humanist tint in their ideology, see only what they can touch, sense, smell, and hear. In the world, it is always in a state of flux. And they say this because of all that they do and how they come about their day. But in the entirety that Acts 17 was conveying, especially with Paul speaking to the Athens, it's, it's amazing how he's able to bring closure to a world they thought or to something they thought was unknown. And the reason why I am stating it in the way that I am is because there is no, there can't be an understanding that there was no intent behind the gospel books. Now, think of it this way. We have the Acts written by Luke to show the work of the apostles and how the church had grown in its infancy. But nowhere in the books of Acts do you ever read about them sitting down and writing the four books or the Gospels as we know them today. So there has to be intent. There has to be reason. And behind the reasoning is not speculation. It's actually an eye-opening experience into understanding the way our God actually works. Because you see, with the Gospels written the way that they are, we cannot think that our God is slack in comforting the church. So when I say that there was intent, I mean it because the way Paul was able to provide reasoning, logic, behind what they could not understand as the unknown, the Gospels now provide clarity, logic, reasoning for the church to understand the greatest event that transpired in, modern, in history. The God-man walked amongst his creation. So, I look at Calvin as he puts it, that the gospel being the ordinary declaration made by the Holy Spirit in the scriptures is to proclaim that 
Christ has come. The Christians or the saints of the old was looking at types, copies, shadows, the major and minor prophets to know who is the Messiah. But the gospel was provided and is finally here to convey who he actually was. And therefore, we as a church should know we now have clarity. So, with that being said, and given that our Lord has arrived and fulfilled his roughly duties, and that he has risen and reigns, it now brings me to this particular portion of my intro. What point are we going to get through with this particular sermon? First, well, I have to answer the question. Why do we have Gospels? And then, secondly, what do we make of the four accounts? Are they authoritative enough? Of my first point, why do we have the Gospels? I'll look to another Pauline excerpt to answer this, this question. Romans 1, 2 through 4. He, being God, promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was born of a descendant of David, according to the flesh, who was declared the son of God with power, according to the spirit of holiness, by the resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Simply put, the declaration made by the Holy Spirit in the scriptures is that for the church today, Christ has come. And unlike our brothers and sisters, like I pointed before in the Old Testament, who saw them through all the copies, shadows, types, and prophets, major and minor, we have the Gospels to make known that he has arrived, and the Messiah, in no better way, could have announced his presence. Luke 4, 17 through 21. And the scrolls of Isaiah the prophet was handed to him. And he unrolled the scroll and he found the place from where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he anointed me to bring the good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recover of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. Verse 20 in Luke 4 states here, and he rolled up the scroll. He gave it back to the attendant. <laughs> he sat down and all the eyes of the people in the synagogue were intently directed to him. And what a way to make his presence known. He began to say to them, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Now, that is the church of that day. They had the Messiah readily and present. But I want to bring to you this. Of our life, and especially with our attention with the gospel, let's take a trip down memory lane with some history. Now, I want to make this point because this is just an introduction. So, the term gospel actually has more of a Latin root. Now, mind you, <laughs> I don't 
want you to think throughout the universe or throughout the expansion of time, gospel always had the connotation that it's had today. In fact, if you really think about it, when you're coming to someone, you're telling them, I hear it bring good news. They're thinking, oh, your wife must be pregnant. Or you got some new cattle. So the term and cognitive uh, definition of gospel, it wasn't so much universal as we understood it. But that kind of conveys to you the power and the gravity that that event brought. And I don't want to underestimate that event because a lot of people, when they hear gospel today, they're already automatically associated with Christianity. You come to your friend or some or another co-worker and he said, hey, I come to bring the gospel to you. Now in Rome, <laughs> they might have thought the same thing I was thinking of before when I told you earlier before Christ's arrival. But now note the power. Just one term has changed the definition in our vocabulary. Even the humanists acknowledge, you look at Britannica and the Merriam-Webster Dictionary, gospel means the salvation of the Lord. You know, you know scroll could find a nut every once in a while, right? But nonetheless, this term should not be, should not be lost in the way that it has moved throughout time. And with that, I want to make that notion across that though we have humanists who would even say that you are talking about the gospel of Christ, that doesn't mean they believed. I can teach, as a scientist has showed today, a, uh, a monkey can say the word gospel. He can say various words. He might even be able to read the Bible. Who knows? But that doesn't necessarily mean he's been changed. There's not a revelatory work at hand. And this is why I keep trying to show you how the definition of the term gospel has been reshaped. Because what was once good news and you associated with things that were worldly now makes a formative shift, even to the point the humanist acknowledges it. And the term now doesn't just have the term that was once before. It means miracles. It means a change. It means God has come. And in the form of the God-man, he, and I cannot stress it enough, he walked among his creation. And if he walked amongst his creation, it brings me now to my second point. We have four accounts. And of the four accounts, what do we make of them? Well, solely and first, we should definitely credit this to the work of the Spirit in these four particular individuals. For what does our confession state in chapter 1, section 1c? It pleased the Lord at sundry times in diverse manners to reveal himself and to declare that what is his will unto his church. So, 
continuing down this thought process, let's look at Romans 3, 2. We can ensure that God then entrusted them to extol the oracles of God. Romans 3, 2. Great in every respect, they were entrusted with the actual words of God. So what makes them now, what makes the gospel message authoritative? Now, surely all of them had to have been apostles, right? We have, throughout history, really 13. One decided to go crazy and hung himself. And the other one came in late, but he was on God's time. But what do we make of it? Surely they had all been apostles. Well, remember, to achieve this office, you would have seen the Christ. But yet, we have no scripture that Mark and or Luke saw or were part of his ministry. Now, do we? Can we still take it to be authoritative? In fact, can you say all the apostles were entrusted with the responsibility of conveying the gospel? Paul notes in 1 Corinthians 15, 9, for I am the least of the apostles and not fit even to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. You see, I bring this up because though Mark and Luke were not necessarily apostles in the sense of the term, but their closeness with the two apostles, Peter and Paul, respectively, we can now, especially since I used Romans 3, 2 as my premise to go forward with this thought, it should assure us that their account should be taken as truth. Mark, being the private friend and disciple of Peter, and Luke, the author of Acts, attended to Paul personally. If it's anything, Romans 3, 2 has given us insight to the authors that we should believe that they were properly qualified and divinely appointed witnesses as the Spirit directed them and guided their pens. Calvin states in his commentary, he states, those writers are chargeable with a want of precision. They interweaved the doctrine which relates to the office of Christ and informs us of what the nature of his grace and for what purpose he has been given to us. They were principally employed in showing that in the person of Jesus Christ, it has been fulfilled of what God had promised from the beginning. They had no intention or design to abolish by their writings the law and the prophets. But on the contrary, they point with the finger to Christ and admonish us to seek from him whatever is ascribed to him by the law and by the prophets. For this is the full Profit and advantage, therefore, it is to be derived from the reading of the Gospels. We will obtain what we learn as it connects to the ancient promises. Our Messiah is consistent 
And especially for Calvin, I apologize, especially for Calvin to convey this is consistent in this manner. Think of it. Do you remember Cleopas and his companion? They're on their way to the village. And this is after the Lord has died and rose. And he hides himself from them. He doesn't make himself known. And through the discourse, the Messiah asks, well, what's wrong? Why do you worry? Now I'm paraphrasing, obviously, but why do you worry? And they explain to him what transpired, knowing that the Lord Jesus Christ, the man who was crucified, was a great man. And we heard about this wonder that all of a sudden they went to the tomb and no longer was the body there. Hey, <laughs> what does the Messiah say to them? And Luke 24, 25 through 27. You foolish men and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken of. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to come to his glory? And what does our Lord do in kind? Then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them the things written about himself in all the scriptures. That is full and expected intention when we should see with the gospels what it should be truly conveying. And I, like I said, I read from, I, I just wrote what, I'm sorry, I just read what Calvin stated in that same thought. Luke 24, 44 to 45 now shows that our Lord and Savior reappeared to the remaining 11 apostles. He said to them, these are my words, which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all the things that were written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. You see, ladies and gentlemen, It's amazing that when somebody speaks, you can kind of decipher the ideology. You read. You can see where their thought process is kind of heading towards. But it's so it's so profound that as our Lord and Savior says, if I am not your foundation and rock, you will be swayed by anything and everything that comes your way. Matthew 7. But you see, in order to say this the way I'm saying it, I should know that with this, the Bible being the written word of God, the gospel stands as my source to know the very words of the Messiah. And you know what's cool? Especially because we're on the question of the four accounts, each one has a personality trait in their writings. The Spirit moved them to write the truth, but each one 
and the way that they were dictated has a very interesting imprint. Why do I say this? It brings me, really I wanted to save this as my third point, but I wanted to bring it all together because it's going to segue us next Lord's Day into why I consider the Gospel of John. Not so much because it's universally known to be different, but there's a difference in the styling. There really is. Now, when you have a chance, do get a chance to listen to all 21 chapters. I believe it should take approximately about 15 minutes if you do it in one sitting and you have it done on the ESV version. I forget the author's name, but uh, he's pretty good, actually. <laughs> the guy who does the spoken, the spoken word. But nonetheless, you can see in here a different tint and how he's conveying the miracles, works, and life of Christ. Which is why I now come to now, since the Gospel of John is our context and subject, especially for this intro and where we're going to head to, how is his account different? Now... I already went when I did the introduction for the first book of John and I did some historical context in there. So I don't really need to go down that pathway anymore, but I will definitely talk about something in regards to his life. New nuances that I learned. It is true. He was called to Christ at a very early age. And it could also be stated especially since he it seemed to be the youngest of the bunch, there was this affinity, especially being the one disciple that Christ loved. He leaned on Jesus' bosom. And a detail of something like this could show you something that I don't think a lot of people can take a lot of credit for. When you say the word intimacy, it doesn't always need to be in a negative connotation. Because the intimacy really means there is a special closeness. Now, the humanist has taken that word and turned it strictly Hollywood so they can make a quick buck. But if you look at the root of the word, there is a sense of closeness that comes with it. And this apostle in credit, <laughs> especially when you get to chapter 21 because of the sense of comedy <laughs> that transpires. In regards to the dynamics that our Lord had with the remaining apostles and their questions and answers. But you can see the gravity and the, the amount of intimacy he had with our Lord. And because of this, I believe he was privy to some things the other apostles weren't privy to. In fact, Going back and just give me some hindsight into the future. Chapter 21, Peter states, well, what about him? You're telling us how all eyes are going to, what about him? And the Messiah responds back, what's that your concern? <laughs> you want to talk about like, oh, he's special. So there's a oneness that he's going to show in his gospel. There's an intimacy he's going to show. And it has to be. Because... At probably at that age, especially with the spirit moving him, there must have been, well, we, we say this in consistency, in the divine providence of God, the movement by which the spirit moved 
on John, it was proper for the church. Especially the attention of this gospel. This attention of this gospel was, from the historical perspective, to counteract the wicked blasphemies of Ibian and Serithius, who flat out denied the divinity of Christ by asserting he was a mere man and he did not exist before his incarnation. But do you remember my intro? And the amount of detail Paul provides in his sermon to the Athenians. And every word that I picked in that intro had intent. For you see, just as Paul made a point to the Athenians to tell them, oh, the world that you exist in does not start from where you think it starts. Remember I was telling you about that style that John takes in his gospel? He starts from the beginning. I mean... I cannot stress enough how the similarities between the way the first gospel of John starts and the way that Paul provides his gospel sermon to the Athenians is a show that you must understand from the beginning. He always existed. And the point of emphasis, verse 28 in chapter 17 of Acts, for in him we live and move and exist in this world that we conceive though I'm able to touch this podium it exists in the mind of God he is not far from where we are do not be slack to think for one second that if he stops thinking of you, you can, I don't even think you can imagine it. You just don't know what not existing actually look like. I'm being honest. In fact, if you read Genesis 1 through chapter 2 to verse number 7, in the seven days that he created the world, every single time he started, it states, God then, in the English, then God said. The power of his spoken word. And for great detail, once he said it and it came into existence, he gave it proper reasoning and he called it what he deemed perfect to call it. And don't think that the way he set up the days and the way he set them up with what he created and the order he created them was by chance. No, no, no. There was intention. And don't think when he created man just because he created him on the sixth day, if I'm not mistaken, that 
he didn't get attention for him. Everything has order. Everything has reasoning. And everything has logic. And that point of emphasis that I'm driving home here should be rock solid now for our foundation moving forward when we get to the book. And especially the first four verses. If you are familiar with the book in the Gospel of John. It's profounding and amazing, right? In fact, some people, when they hear me talk, they said, man, you sound like a very intellectual guy. How do you know all this? And I'm like, man, if you only knew, I feel like I only know 1% of a large body of work. <laughs> if you only knew. But in my amazement, John, in scripture it testifies, he wasn't a trained or learned man. Acts 4.13. Now they observe the confidence, confidence, the boldness at which the Spirit enlightened Peter and John. Now they observe the confidence of Peter and John and understood that they were uneducated and untrained men. But they were amazed and recognized and began to recognize to began to recognize them as having been with the Lord Jesus. I cannot stress enough how coming to the Bible, one, we should definitely have the intent of wanting the Spirit to enlighten us. Because a humanist can come to the Bible and a Christian can come to the Bible. They are both able to read and they see words on a paper. But what makes the humanist and the Christian different? For the humanist, it's just words on paper. For the Christian, the words come to life. And by the revelatory work of the Spirit, they have now in better detail of what God's intention are, what his will is for his people, and how he is continually with you. And what better way than to segue to a conclusion by saying to you that the definition, the intention of the gospel book itself, Calvin puts it here, it is in it the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Romans 1, 16. And by this display of God's righteousness and by the embassy that is the gospel, God is able to reconcile men to himself with Christ as the pledge of the mercy of God. So when we get to the book, we're going to see his miracles. We're going to see his dealings. We are going to see his works. We're going to see him pray. We're going to observe his emotions and how he deals with the humanists, how he deals with his own people. We're going to see mercy. We're going to see love. 
We're going to see truth. And we're going to see comfort. <laughs> we're going to seek some comedy. But most of all, we're going to see God's will for his people. And with the Gospel of John, I can assure you that just as their intent was to show everything points back to Christ. Due to this expository journey that we're about to go through, we should have comfort knowing good and well how God is continuing to comfort his church by having Christ as their federal head and united to him one to one in love. Shall we pray?